Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning, church. When I sing that song that we sang right before the video, I oftentimes think of the passage of scripture in Luke 7, where there's a woman anointing Jesus' feet with her hair, all of our affections, all of our love we pour out on your feet. And I just wanna ask you this question, is that real to you? Is what you experienced just a moment ago real? Not were you sincere, I'm not asking that, I'm not asking well, whether or not you really believe this stuff. I'm like what you have in your faith relationship with Jesus, is that real and was that a real encounter with God that you just had? And you think about that. Like how do you know for sure? Have you ever been duped by somebody before? Like you thought they were somebody and they ended up being somebody else and I was thinking there's certain roles in life that it's really important that you trust somebody, your dentist, your doctor, your mechanic. Like, think about your mechanic. Like, how many of us really know about cars? Like, if you ask somebody, do you have a good mechanic? You're like, yeah, I trust him. You don't say, like, he's the best brake expert ever, but don't take him for power steering. Like, you don't think that. You just think, hey, I don't think this guy's ripping me off and doing work that he's not supposed to do or overcharging me. And I remember everybody's got a guy, right? Like, if you have a mechanic, he's like, I got a guy. I'll tell you about my guy. I had a guy at one time. And a great mechanic, had lots of work done. I didn't think he was charging me for extra stuff. I believe that he was from France, his accent, his name, he told me that. Had helicopter pictures everywhere, said he was in the French army, worked on helicopters there. And then one day I was getting my car inspected, had a problem with some bearings in the tire or something like that, and they told me, he said, you wanna get that checked out, we don't fix that here. I called my guy, he didn't answer the phone. Usually called me back pretty soon. I called back a couple days later, phone's disconnected. What in the world? Had a mutual friend with him, so I texted that guy. I was like, hey, you haven't heard from this guy? He's not responding to me. I got a text back. Says, you're not gonna hear from him for probably about three to five years. <laughs> I said, what? What's going on? And he sent me an article from WRAL. My man had flown a helicopter onto the SAS campus. I don't know if you saw that story or not. That was my mechanic. Landed it there, got out, pretended to be a three-star general from the U.S. Army, told the SAS security they had clearance from the White House, Got arrested. I'm reading the article, and what bothered me the most was my man wasn't from France. He was from Chile. I was like, who is this guy? I was duped. Some of you have been duped before. But you go to find out if something's the real thing. Maybe it's not a person, sometimes it's a thing. I was listening this, this week. I was getting ready, just shaving in the morning. I was listening to my little Echo Dot. It was giving me the news updates. And I heard about this guy that was on the Antique Road Show. The video went viral. Some of you, some of your heads are, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. This guy had a watch he bought in 1971, a Rolex watch, paid $350 for it. If you're not familiar with the Antique Road Show, people will bring their old junk and try and figure out if it's worth some money. This guy shows up there, he brings his watch. He's never worn, kept it in a box the whole time. Asked it, you know, what it was worth. The appraiser or auctioneer guy, whatever, whoever he was, he says, a watch like this would go for $400,000. The guy fell over, literally fell down, if you've seen the video. And walks around and he goes, I didn't say this watch, a watch like this. Appraisers now are saying that watch that he paid $350 for because he never wore it and it's a real deal. Some of you are like, I got this one in you know, Chinatown in New York, I gotta take it, take it in, just see. It's worth between five hundred dollars and $700,000, they said. It's the real deal. How do you know if what you have is the real deal? That's what we're gonna talk about today in our passage as we pick up where we're at in Matthew chapter five. Really what we're doing today is picking up right where we left off last week. And I'm not gonna give you the whole context for the sermon. You'll have to go back and hear some of the past messages. But here's the summary of last week's message. That spiritual transformation in our lives should lead to gospel saturation in the lives of those around us. 
As God transforms our lives spiritually, and really that's the outline of the sermon, and verses 1 through 12 is about spiritual transformation. Oftentimes we call them the Beatitudes, these blessing statements, what it looks like to have a life that's truly happy, truly joyous. And then verses 13 through 16, this is one of the big responses that's supposed to happen in your life. Some people are going to persecute you because of your faith, because of the spiritual transformation. But some people are going to see your Father who's in heaven, and they're going to give him glory. And said so that you are, think about that, you are, that's an identity statement. Like when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you didn't just receive eternal life. You didn't just receive new hope. You didn't just receive forgiveness. You became a new person. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And people should see your life as you let your light shine. They should be drawn. They should want God more. That spiritual transformation leads to gospel saturation. And really, that was the dream that we had when we came to start this church. Just so you know, my wife and I didn't have a dream to really start a church. We wanted to reach this city for Christ. And we wanted to have a church of people that were so transformed by the gospel that non-believers in our community would say things like this. I don't go to church, but if I did, I'd go there. Because those people are real. They might not know whether or not God's real, they might not believe all that stuff, but they've seen a real transformation in your life, so they know it's authentic, they know it's genuine. Or, or say things like this, I don't believe, but I believe you really do, because they see that it makes a difference in your life. And we were talking about last week, as we were going through that message about the early church, they just really lived this stuff out. They weren't more educated than society, they didn't have better positions of influence than the rest of society. They were just genuine Christians who believed simple things like love your enemy, Pray for those who persecute you. Let your good deeds shine before men that they would not glorify you but glorify your Father. Love others, just take care of each other and forgive one another and bless those who persecute you. And they did that stuff and the world was drawn to it. And the early church grew by 40% per decade. But I also shared with you, that's not what's happening here today. The church in America has been on decline for 50 years. The last 15 years have been a steep decline. And I shared some stats that some of you have responded to me about. I shared that the projection in the next 30 years is best case scenario, 28 million people that are currently in our church, like we don't have to have that many people in our church, but like currently in the church in America, some of them in Bridge Kids, some of them sitting next to you today, some of them in student ministry. And worst case scenario, 42 million are gonna walk away from the faith in the next 30 years. Some of you wrote, what do we do? How do we combat? One guy, Brandon Cole, told me I could share his email. For the sake of time, I'm not gonna read it to you, but he basically says this. That's really concerning. I bet everybody else is concerned. What do we do? Well, I'll tell you right now that our, our elders, I told you we went on a retreat. We're working on what our next steps are because our vision as a church wasn't to get to this campus and have a paid off campus and then like we all settle in and everything's cool. We've got a city to reach. Statistics tell us there's over 1.3 million currently lost people in our city and then a bunch of people that are in the church are gonna be walking away from the church the next 30 years. What do we do? Will you pray with us through some of that strategy? It'll be coming, we, we plan, we plan to share with you some expansion on our vision this fall. Will you pray with us, share ideas, share thoughts that you have. Last time we prayed together as a church about something like this, we got a free building. So be praying, who knows what the Lord wants to do. But Jesus tells us some next steps right in our passage today. As we talk about the real deal on righteousness, look what he says. Verses 17 through 20 in our passage today are really the heart of this whole sermon. It's Matthew 5 through 7. And, and what happens is we get the principle in verses 17 through 20, and then all the way through verse 48, he unpacks it with illustrations. We won't get all the way through that today, but we'll look at some of it. Look with me. About one of the things we need to do in verses 17 through 20 is this. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law 
or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's crucial, Jesus setting up who he is here before he says what he's gonna say. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the, one of the least of these commandments, so they're not all the same, huh? All sin's not the same either, huh? and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we can't explain this stuff away that's about to come. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never, doesn't say be great in the kingdom, never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a shocking statement. There's some big stuff here. First of all, Jesus shows us in verse 17, he's got an incredibly high view of scripture. When he talks about the law and the prophets, he's talking about the Old Testament as a whole, which could be the principle of it could be all of Scripture. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. And so he's referring to his audience as he's sitting on that mountain. He's teaching in Galilee. These people are all gathered around. Some of them are followers. Some of them are not. Some of them are opponents. And he says, you can't, it doesn't matter. You can twist God's word. You can say you don't believe it. But until the end of time, not one dot not one cross in the T, dot in the I, you can put it in English language for us, not one iota, not one little change in O to a Q symbol. That's not gonna be changed from God's word. God's word is authoritative. So here's something for us to think about. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that means you've called Jesus Lord. That means he's master of your life. If our Lord and master has a high view of scripture, why wouldn't we? We should. So then, I ask you this, what do you expect to happen when you come to the scriptures? Like, what do you expect to happen today as we open up God's word? Some of us were checking a religious box, like we just go to church, that's what we do. Did you ever think that maybe by the end of today you'd be on your face because God revealed things to you you didn't know and you're just going, God, I didn't even know. I didn't even know that was sin. I didn't even know I was dishonoring you with that. I didn't even realize that. Or you might reveal something new and you realize, I didn't realize that's what you were doing in my life and now I see it from your word. I see how the circumstances, because God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to our hearts. It transforms our lives. We should look into it like a mirror and see ourselves and sometimes we don't like what we see. Sometimes what we see is encouraging, but it should be transforming. We'd experience spiritual transformation. One of the primary ways is through the scripture. And Jesus holds the scripture incredibly high, but look at what he says here, because he's gonna bring some clarity on some things that are stated in the law in just a moment. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I'm not undoing what was said before. He just said the scriptures aren't gonna be changed. I came to fulfill them. So what does it mean that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets? There's a lot of answers to that. We don't have time. We could write a whole book just on that, but it doesn't just mean he fulfills all the prophecies of the Old Testament. It does mean that. It doesn't just mean that he lived a perfect life and he's the only person who never disobeyed the law. It does mean that. It's not just that in his teaching and his obedience and in his death and resurrection, he fulfilled all those things. It means all of that. But it also means like Matthew's going out of his way and the gospel of Matthew to show you that Jesus is a new and better Moses. Those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, you'll know that Moses, the most famous moment is when he parts the Red Sea, right? Jesus walks across water. Doesn't he have to move the water? Pretty famous story in the Old Testament about manna coming from heaven. Jesus miraculously feeds people. Pretty famous that Moses goes up on a mountain, comes down and gives the law. Jesus is sitting on a mountain right now. And he's about to teach them the law. He's about to show them, you wanna know what real righteousness looks like? That's why there's such a shocking statement in verse 20. Here's what real righteousness looks like. Here's the overarching truth for today's sermon is simply this, that real righteousness flows from or comes from, comes out of a radical relationship with Jesus Christ. 
real righteousness flows out of a radical relationship with Jesus Christ. Just think about this shocking statement that he says in verse 20. It's before I tell you, unless your righteousness, remember he just said, don't, you can't undo this stuff. There's not one dot, not one iota you can remove from the word. Great are people who explain this and actually live it out, not just who talk about it, but least are the people who would try and explain this stuff away. For I tell you, unless your righteousness, you personally, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never, not be least, you'll never enter. You don't even get in the kingdom of heaven. That's a shocking statement. In order to understand it, you've got to understand the scribes and Pharisees. Sometimes in the church, we always make them look like the bad guys. Every time they come on the scene, dum, 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 it's like the low minor keys start playing, right? If you've seen a church play. Some of you have been at church plays. You know what I'm talking about. Here's the deal. Scribes back then were some of the most honored people in all of society. They started learning the Bible, the law, primarily the first five books of the Old Testament, when they were little kids. They didn't get ordained to actually teach the Bible until they were 40 years old. They would wear special robes in public that when they would walk by, people would stand up to honor them and they would say things like, Rabbi, teacher, master. It was a great honor. They were the pros. The Pharisees were primarily not professionally religious. They were lay people. And their name means set apart ones. Oftentimes they're showed as the, you know, the antithesis to true righteousness, to genuine Christianity in the Bible. But, but everybody then thought of them as like, you guys are the most righteous people. They believed there were 248 positive commandments in the Old Testament, over 300 negative things, and they went to great lengths to make sure they didn't, they always did the good stuff and they didn't do the bad stuff. And they made even more rules on top of those rules and so as the separated ones, they were really specific about ritual, ritual purity. So specific, there was a, an exact way you had to wash your hands. So specific about observing the Sabbath, there were rules about how far they could walk away from their front door. So specific about tithing, that you were eating, you know, some people are like, I'm, I'm gonna make sure, do I, is it on the net or the gross of my income? They're like, forget all that. When I'm gardening, if I get two tomatoes, a tenth of that's going to the church. Listen, we don't want your tomatoes, okay? But that's what they would do. And so to imagine for a second, you're Peter, just an average guy, you're a fisherman, and you hear, unless you have righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not even getting in. Imagine you're Matthew. Matthew, by the way, is a tax collector. He steals money for a living. He funds terrorism for a living. He's a traitor. Imagine hearing, unless we exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, like think about how shocking this statement would be. Jesus is teaching to a lot of people sitting on this mountain. It's almost like there'd be a hush. Think about shocking statements you've heard. I remember my parents, parents' generation say they'll never forget where they were at when JFK was shot. You get that news and it feels like it's not. Remember my generation, 9-11. See those towers go down. Probably nobody here who didn't realize the helicopter crash that Kobe Bryant was in. A week ago today, remember when you got that news? It doesn't even seem real. Most of you here don't even know Kobe. Some of you told me you cried. Remember when I heard, I got the chills. I was like, no way. It can't be real. Think about what the audience heard when Jesus said these words. That can't be true. What you're saying, that can't be real. But, but then think about who is it that could possibly have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees? There's only one. And he's just told you the answer. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. 
I didn't come to abolish the prophets. I came to fulfill the prophets. Not one dot, not one iota can be taken away. The only one whose righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees is Jesus. But what good does that do us? Here's what good it does us. That when you experience verse three for the first time in your life, do you remember verse three? You might, if you have a Bible, look back up verse three. That you were poor in spirit. That you realize you didn't bring anything to the table before God. That you were totally dependent upon him. When you did verse four for the first time in your life, you mourned your sin. And you realized your need for a savior. And you, maybe even you got on your knees and you were like, God, I, I can't even save myself. Save me. And like in Luke chapter 18, when Jesus talks about there's a Pharisee and there's a tax collector, like Matthew. And the Pharisee comes in and he's proud because at least I'm not like this guy. And then the, 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 the tax collector's going, have mercy on me, a sinner, poor in spirit, mourning my sin, turning to, turning to God to be saved. At that moment in your life, when you called upon Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, lots of things happened. You received a new identity. We already talked about that. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You were forgiven of your sins. You were cleansed of all unrighteousness. But do you know that you became the righteousness of God in that moment? And not just for that moment. For all time, before God, you became righteousness. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, let me read you an incredibly encouraging verse. It's in 2 Corinthians in chapter five. It'll be up on the screen. It says this. For our sake, he, that's God, made him, talking about Jesus, to be sin. That's why Jesus was forsaken at the cross. He was becoming our sin. That's when he was taking the wrath of God upon our, the punishment for our sin on himself. He made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That means, you know whose righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees? Those whose hearts have been transformed by God because of their relationship with Jesus Christ. Real righteousness flows out of a radical, how much more radical can you get than God leaving heaven, coming to earth, and dying in your place? A radical relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, the Old Testament said that there'd be a radical work that would happen. Our hearts are deceptive and wicked beyond all things. That they're hardened hearts, that they always pursue sin. Listen to what, what Ezekiel says will happen through Jesus. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Oh, so this changed heart actually does flow into changed behavior. You see, I'm gonna give you a new heart, and it's not just like, now we're just good, God, and everything's cool. We're under grace. No, it's, no, evidence of that changed heart is you're actually gonna want to do what God desires for you. And so what we see Jesus do after he gives this incredible teaching in verses 17 through 20, talking about real righteousness. Here's what real righteousness looks like. It exceeds that of the Pharisees. The only one that has that is me. It's through relationship with me. Here's the evidences of those things, and there's six illustrations in verses 21 through 48. We won't cover all of them today, but we'll cover a few. The first one is this. The first evidence of real righteousness in your life is radical reconciliation. Real righteousness seeks radical reconciliation. Look what Jesus says next in verse 21. He says, you've heard that it was said of those of old, 
you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, and so what Jesus is gonna do in these next several passages of scripture is he's gonna say, you've heard it said, but I say. Six times he says this, or a version of that. You heard this, but I say this. What he's doing is not changing the Old Testament law. He just said, not one dot, not one iota. What he's attacking is, is he's attacking their misunderstanding, their false interpretation of the law. Some of them thought it just meant behavior. Some of them have twisted it to fit their behavior. And so he's confronting those things here. So he says this about marriage. He says, or about, um, we'll get to marriage in just a minute, about murder. He says, you've heard that it was said, those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry, but what's Jesus concerned about, our behavior or our, good, three of you know it, I love it, hearts, coming after our hearts. He's going after the intention behind that law there. He's angry with his brother, will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, and he takes us down a path of how anger builds, will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So this is serious stuff. He's talking about hell here. This is just like, oh, you messed up. We'll figure it out. He's going after the heart, and he's talking about our anger. That's pretty scary stuff. Is there anybody here who's never been angry? I see hands. You're fixing your hair. Don't do that. I'm a pastor. I'll count you. Like, everybody here has gotten angry. Like, today's Super Bowl Sunday, right? Like, I know we're in North Carolina. I don't know if anybody cares about, you know, the 49ers or the Chiefs. But what's going to happen for some of you today is you're going to pick a team. You're going to pick, you know, Patrick Mahomes or whatever, and Andy Reid to win one for the first time. That's the right choice. The rest of you can pick or whatever. Um, <laughs> but you're going to pick. Maybe you pick the 49ers. You pick the red team, all right? You pick the red team, and you're excited, and you're watching the game, and you didn't even know who any of these people were before the game, but now you're into it, and then some call is going to go against the team you're rooting for. And you're going to be like, that ref, you're going to challenge his eyesight, his intelligence level, maybe what schools he went to, where he was found, who his parents were. You don't even know the guy's name. Because <laughs> we get angry. If you don't do that watching a football game, I'll just ask you this. Have you ever been to the DMV? <laughs> okay, all right. That's like, that's the testing ground right there. I went, about a week ago, I went with, my two, with two little kids, I went. I had the kids that day, went to the DMV, had to get some paperwork, they couldn't do it online. And I showed up, I thought it was gonna be a good experience because there were like seven or eight people in front of me. The line was going fast at first, and then it stopped because this one guy didn't have his paperwork. And then he kept turning around and looking at us like it was their fault. I'm like, it's not their fault. I didn't say this. And that was when I had about five people in front of me. No, I had five people in front of me, I know, because I counted them multiple times. That's what I did to try and pretend like I wasn't being impatient as I tried to stand there with a straight face so my kids didn't see me lose it. When I finally was about, I was gonna be the next person up there, this lady who was approximately six people behind me, she was exactly six people behind me, starts yelling, because the line had built up to the door by this point. She starts yelling, I was here for five hours yesterday, and I thought, oh no, they're gonna let this lady go in front of me. They did. <laughs> but before I could lose it, she lost it. And she started yelling at everybody in the place. And she started saying, I've been here for eight hours. And I was like, well, five hours yesterday. Maybe she got an argument. Five minutes later, she was talking about a 20-hour wait she had experienced. And my daughter looked up at me. I go, no, not 20 hours. It wasn't 20 hours. And so, <laughs> but we've all experienced that, right? And so then we read a passage like this, like I'm guilty of murder? That's not what this passage is saying. In fact, anger is not sin. Anger is an emotion. It's amoral. It's just how you feel. God gets angry. 
Jesus could think. In fact, Jesus says, read Matthew 23 in your own time, he actually says to the Pharisees, you blind fools, wait a minute. Is Jesus contradicting his own teaching here? He commands us in Ephesians chapter four to be angry and not sin. What he's talking about here in this passage is a specific kind of anger, so you gotta put it in his context. The kind of anger he's talking about here is the kind of anger you get when you want retaliation, when you want revenge. Someone's wronged you, and you're gonna make them pay. Jesus never does that kind of anger. Jesus, though reviled, does not revile in return. No, he gets angry when people are being hypocritical in their worship because of the glory of God. He gets angry when he goes into the temple and John and they're making a mockery of worship because what they have is not real, it's fake. And he's confronting that. One commentator talking about this kind of anger, his name's Kent Hughes, he says this, you may think you are removed from murder morally, but you are wrong. (laughs) You don't know me, what are you talking about? This was piercing to me when I read it this week. Have you ever wished someone were dead? Then your heart has known murder. And I'm ashamed to say to you, I've, I've wished that I'm more than one person. Have you? Do you don't have to answer out loud. Then what do we do? Well, Jesus tells us a couple illustrations here that's the antidote to this kind of anger. It's reconciliation. Look at the next couple verses. He gives two illustrations here about radical reconciliation. See, real righteousness seeks radical reconciliation. So he says this, verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, so you've done wrong and you remember somebody else is upset with you and we're all sinners and we all have relationships and so we're bound to all wrong each other. Here's what he says to do. Leave your gift before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And then he gives another illustration. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. But you're in jail, so you can't make any more in hell. You can't undo this. These are extreme illustrations, but before we're so quick to jump into application of this, you gotta put yourself into the context of those who are originally listening. Because when they're going to offer their gift at the altar, it's not like how we'll come to church, you know, every week or three out of four weeks in the month. It's not like that where you're here regularly. They're in Galilee. He's sitting on a mountain. He's teaching to these folks. And he's talking to them about taking their gift to the altar. That would be a living animal. That's not your money you're gonna drop in the box for some offering. It's, it's I'm taking an animal, and I go, and I wait in line. So picture the DMV. I'm waiting in line at the temple after traveling to this place. I only do this once or twice a year. And when I get up to the front and I'm about to have my animal slaughtered, God reminds me I've wronged someone. And he says, don't offer the, like efficiency would be like, well, after I do this, I'm gonna go take care of that. He says, leave the animal, travel 80 to 100 miles back to Galilee. This is costly. They don't have cars. Make it right, then you can come back and offer your animal. So what does that mean for us? Well, that means it might cost you something. It will certainly humble you. But I'm not interested in your worship. That's fake. If you're not right with your brothers and sisters in Christ, your relationships are your worship. Real righteousness 
seeks radical reconciliation. Do you need to be reconciled with anybody today? You can leave here while I'm preaching. I will not be offended just because we're in the South. It will not be impolite for you to stand up and leave right now and go call somebody, drive to somebody's house, text message in the lobby. It's way easier for us because of technology, the advancements we have, but it might be costly. That would be an evidence. What you have is the real deal, though, because we all, we all wrong people. Probably everybody here is guilty of murder. Second evidence, verses 27 through 30, real righteousness responds radically to sin. Real righteousness responds radically to sin. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, or could be man, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her, him, in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. These are radical statements he's making here. It's not just that you experience shame, that you don't feel good about yourself, that you don't experience freedom. He's talking about heaven and hell here. Now some of you are gonna ask after this message, I'm gonna stop you from writing me an email right now. You're gonna say, are you saying I can lose my salvation? No. But it's pretty presumptuous to think that you're gonna willfully sin and assume that you're saved. So the person we're gonna get, this ties right into the marriage one we're gonna talk about, the person who's thinking to themselves, I'm gonna, I know this isn't a biblical reason to get a divorce, but I'm gonna divorce my spouse, and God will forgive me, he understands, he knows what this is like, here's a, whoa, 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 lots of presumption by you. The person who's like, I'm a Christian, I know, I prayed this prayer this time, but, and this is kind of my struggle, but you're not struggling, you're surrendering to sexual sin, whoa, talking about heaven and hell here. But here's the thing, I unfortunately have to explain some stuff in this passage Jesus didn't have to explain. Because in Jesus' day, while they weren't allowed to kill each other because of adultery, that was the Jewish belief. You were, you were guilty, they were under Roman rule so they couldn't do it, but the Jewish belief was you commit adultery, that's so wrong, we're gonna stone you to death. That's why Mary was gonna be stoned when they thought that she was adulterous, that, Matthew, or that uh, Joseph was trying to figure out, how do I do, I'm gonna be honorable here, he loves her, but this is what's supposed to happen. We live in a time where 65% of Americans, at least, might be higher now, don't even think adultery is a moral issue. So let me tell you what adultery is, first of all. So I have to, I'll, I'll just explain this. God's intention for sex is it happens in a marriage covenant relationship between one man and one woman. Anything that's a sexual relationship or encounter outside of that is adultery, according to the Bible. What is lust? Lust, lust, first of all, some of you, so this is like the tension of preaching, right? Like there's some people here who are just like take your salvation for granted and you assume that you're a Christian and you're probably not. And there's some people here that's like every time I'd say, hey, you might not be a Christian, you're getting saved, okay? Super sensitive conscience and like super hardened hearts. Some of you with super sensitive conscience, lust is not that you look at somebody and think they're attractive. That's not a sin. He's handsome, she's pretty. Like that's not a sin. Lust is lingering on that, beginning to fantasize about those people. And what Jesus is saying here is if you lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. And adultery really is a sin. And if you read through the scriptures, what you end up finding out is that adultery is especially heinous to God. He says that it's unlike all other sin in 1 Corinthians chapter six. Every other sin is outside the body. This sin, so it's a unique sin. All sin's not the same. 
Sexual sin's different. He uses this sexual sin as an illustration of the idolatry of his people in Ezekiel when he says to his people, he says, you prefer strangers to your own husband. You're spiritual adulterers. The husband is God in that passage. Idolatry, or or adultery is an idolatry that breaks the first commandment, the seventh commandment, the 10th commandment. It's a big deal. And so here he talks about heaven and hell with it. And then the question I'd ask you, don't respond out loud. Is there anybody here who's not guilty? Most of us will come to the conclusion that we're guilty of murder and adultery. After just these first two illustrations, let me say something about that. We should be the most gracious church in the world for anybody who walks through these doors, not thinking that we're better than anybody because it should drive us to be, verse three, poor in spirit and to mourn our sin. But what do we do? And like this, we're in such a sex-saturated world. Like how do you even survive as a follower of Jesus? Like you watch the Super Bowl today and people wanna watch the commercials and some of them are funny, but almost all of them use sex to sell stuff. Like cars, cologne, hamburger. Is there anything less sexy than a hamburger? They have like a supermodel selling some two cow patties with fat seeping out of them and onions on it. It's like, oh, that's sexy. No, it's not, it's gross. Tastes good, but it's gross. And like, I don't even have to talk to you. I feel like you've probably been bombarded. Whether you've gone to this church or any other church, like how much pornography is all over the place, makes way more money than the NFL, NBA, NHL, all those combined. Sex trafficking is like America's dirty little secret. People having sex with kids in our culture. Like that's normal. So how do we not even look? Jesus says that we have to be fighting. The evidence of a real righteousness in your life, you're in a battle. It's not that you'd never sin again, but are you fighting? And fighting is not a passive, God, will you take this away? Nope, he didn't, so I'm just gonna keep doing it. No, that's not, that's not what he's talking about here. Look at the examples he gives. It's radical. You'd have a radical response to sin. Your eye caused you to sin, tear it out. Your, your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. It's like, well, that's extreme, Jesus. So there's some people who've really done this. He's using hyperbole here. One of our church fathers, Origen, castrated himself to try and deal with lust. And you know what he found out? Didn't work. Because Jesus says here that this is actually an issue of the heart. So why are we having eye surgery? Like, you wouldn't do that with your doctor. You have a heart problem. We're gonna cut your eye out. Whoa, 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 whoa. He's using hyperbole to tell you this. Do whatever you have to do. One of our other church fathers, John Owen, he said this. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And so the question for you as we look at this is, are you fighting do you battle? Do you do whatever it takes? I mean, as humans, we'll do whatever it takes to survive physically. Think about that, like just all the stories we hear. My, my daughter's reading a book about survival right now for one of her school projects. I was telling her about this family. They got caught out in the ocean. They drank turtle's blood because they couldn't, they couldn't, they would dehydrate and die if they didn't do it. They do whatever we have to do. They killed turtles with spears, drank turtle blood, rubbed the oil on their skin to try and use a sunblock. Pretty amazing information if you start reading these stories, by the way. I think we've all probably heard of Aaron Ralston. It's a guy who was out hiking, got his arm pinned to a a rock by a boulder, thought he was gonna die there, tried to cut his arm off with a pocket knife, didn't work, wasn't sharp enough. So he broke his arm, then he remembered there's two bones in your arm, broke the, cut his arm off in order to physically survive. Like we would do that. Humans have proven we'll do anything to physically survive. Jesus is talking about heaven and hell here. Like this is spiritual survival he's talking about in this passage. He says, you fight. So what does that mean? What does that mean for us? We're not gonna cut your eye out. I'm gonna cut your hand off. What do you do? Well, if you're surrendering to sexual sin, 
you repent. That's where you start. And 1 John 1, 9 says he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He'll restore you. But then you got a battle because it's not just done at that moment. There's a battle. Even Paul talks about being in the battle. Read Romans 7. I don't do the things I want to do and then I do things I don't want to do. There's a, there's a battle. But if you're fighting, that's evidence. This might be real that's happening in your life. So practically, what, what does that mean? Well, some of you might need to get rid of your phones. So that's not realistic. I have to have a phone. Maybe, but you don't have to have an HD video on it. And you don't have to be, have high-speed internet. Why don't you get a flip phone? No, that's ridiculous. Well, gouge out your eye. Jesus talking about this. Some of you in relationships, you're living with somebody, it's not your spouse, move out. Well, I can't, finances, I've had that, I'm a pastor, like eye to eye, I had people tell me, because of the, fi- you live, you, you go to a church. Like, we have places for you to live. Do you want to fight? That's the question. You talk to your boyfriend, girlfriend after this, say, I, I want to, we're going to be pure from now on. They don't want that? Then God has better for you than that. Break up. You got a job and there's this flirtatious, inappropriate relationship and you haven't actually had sex yet. Oh, but you have in your mind. Get a new job. Oh, I have to have a job. You don't have to have that job. Like, fight. Do whatever it takes. Real righteousness flows out of a radical, he did whatever it took for you. A radical relationship with Jesus Christ. It seeks radical reconciliation, deals radically with sin, and has a radical view of marriage. Look at the next couple verses. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this is only two verses, first of all. This is not everything there is to say about marriage in the Bible. This isn't the vision of what marriage is supposed to be. Read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. Marriage is not for your happiness. It's also not even for your holiness. In spite of that being a catchy quote, it's for the glory of God to put the gospel on display. The husbands love their wives like Christ loved the church. The wife will love the husband like the church loves Jesus. The people would see your marriage and they'd be drawn to Jesus Christ. That's not happening in our world today. Divorce rates for Christians are the exact same as the rest of the world. And so the guy who wrote me the email, Brandon, do you want to know, Brandon, how, how in the world, how can we do this? We need to look different. 28 million to 42 million people leaving the church because it makes no difference. We need to be different. And what Jesus is calling us to here is a radically higher view of marriage than what they had in that day. What he's alluding to when he says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate, comes from Deuteronomy 24, one through four. You can look that up on your own, see what it really says. It says, if your wife commits an indecency, give her a certificate of divorce, and it goes on to talk about remarriage in that passage. So this passage doesn't say everything there is to say about marriage, doesn't say everything there is to say about divorce. You can read 1 Corinthians chapter seven. There's another exception clause there. If you're a, non, if you're a believer, you're married to a non-believer, they leave, let them go. They're not even talking about adultery there. But what does this passage say? Without us making it all convoluted, and we're warned in the scripture not to explain this away. It says, if you divorce her and she hasn't committed adultery, you're guilty of her adultery, assuming she's gonna remarry. She's gonna be remarried, and God didn't see that as a real legitimate divorce, so another man married your wife. And you're guilty of that because you left her. That's what he's saying. If you marry a divorced woman, you commit adultery. That's what Jesus is saying here. Well, that's a lot, especially considering the hundreds of stories that are sitting here. Doesn't mean it's perpetual adultery. We'll say that. 
Some of you may be guilty of violating this scripture and committing adultery in your past, and what I would challenge you with is this. Have a high view of marriage today. That doesn't mean go undo that you've been remarried and, and you're not supposed to go back to the first, but like you don't cause more mess and cause more harm and be committed to the marriage that you're in right now. Some of you, it means you're in a marriage though and you need to fight. The same as we just talked about fighting lust in our hearts, you need to fight for the marriage. Some of you, you need to seek radical reconciliation. It's not just with other people in your church, but like in your marriage. Like young people need to see that through these believers, it's different for us than it is for everybody else. And so if you've, let me say this as tenderly as possible, if you've been divorced, that isn't, that's not the scarlet sin. That is not like you're no good for Jesus anymore. That's not what's being said here. You can be forgiven. It's the same as if you've lusted before. It doesn't mean you're like, out. Turn to him, repent of the sin that took place. Be reconciled to him and then change. Have a high view of marriage. This is talking about an incredibly high view of marriage. It's a fight for your marriage. Seek reconciliation. And live a life of transparency. Live a life of honesty. You see the next part of this passage here. This is the last one we'll look at today. Evidence number four. That real righteousness lives radical lives of honesty. Jesus says in verses 31 through 37, Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And what he's doing here is he's eliminating a bunch of loopholes they were using to be deceptive. He's not even talking about not taking oaths. I'll tell you about why that is in just a minute. He says, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, there's some denominations that will take this passage and will say, if you're in court, do not swear on the Bible. Do not sign a contract. You cannot do that. Like you, you, that is wrong for you as a Christian. I think it's admirable that they want to apply the scriptures. That's not what Jesus' intention is here, and we've got to read the scriptures as a whole, looking at all the scriptures. God swears by an oath. Read Hebrews chapter six. The book of Numbers commands us to take some oaths. Jesus speaks under oath when he's on trial in chapter 26 of this book, verses 63 and 64. You can look those things up on your own. What was happening here was that these people, even these religious people, were using their oaths as a way to deceive people. It's like if your kids tell you, oh, I promise I clean my room, and they cross their fingers behind their back. Like, I swear by Jerusalem, because they weren't swearing by God, they thought, well, if I break it, it's not a big deal, because what's Jerusalem? But he's going, God owns it. He goes, the hairs on your head. You can't swear by the hairs on your head and get out of it. That makes you deceptive. And he says, let your yes be a yes, let your no be a no. In other words, live such lives of integrity that people don't need you to swear. We say it like this, your word is your bond. That actually means something because of the life that you live of integrity. But here's the reality. Most Christians don't. I remember listening to a sermon on integrity by, was at one time was the uh, president of the seminary I went to in Dallas. His name is Chuck Swindoll. He was preaching on Daniel. And he was talking about when he became the president of the seminary, one of the shocking things for him was when he went to the bookstore and saw they had cameras in a seminary bookstore. Now here's the deal. Those of you who don't know what seminary is, it's like graduate school for pastors and missionaries. He said we had to have cameras in a bookstore because people were stealing Bibles. Thou shalt not steal is in there, just FYI. They would take a new Bible out of a box, put an old Bible in, and then leave the bookstore. He said he couldn't believe it. And he challenged the student body to read a book called Keeping Your Ethical Edge. It was by two believers, 
and they had done hard research, like real research about believers, and here's the conclusion that they came to. He said that they live in a world with non-believers, and when you look at their lives, fellow Christians are just as likely to cheat on our taxes, commit plagiarism, bribe to obtain a building permit, ignore construction specifications, shift blame onto someone else, illegally copy a computer program, steal from the workplace, selectively obey laws, the world of unbelievers is there. There was no difference, that's the gist of it. So what do we do for these 28 to 42 million people? They're gonna walk away from the church someday? We gotta start with asking ourselves, is what we have even real? Because if it's not, we're wasting our time. Why are we here? What are we doing? Is what, what you have real righteousness? And here's some evidences of that. Not all of them, but some. And what we need to do today is be honest with ourselves, before God, with one another. Some of you may need to reconcile some relationships. Some of you need to start repenting of sexual sin, dealing with sin, fighting that sin. Some of us need to make a recommitment in our marriages. Some of us need to decide, I, I need... I need some, some accountability. I need somebody to help me walk with integrity because there's all these areas where I'm tempted to cheat and to lie and make myself as a better. I'll tell you, we can, talk, we can talk about 28 to 42 million. I know people that have left our church because of other people that attend our church. I remember there was one guy, he started coming to our church, fell in love with Jesus, loved the gospel. And I connected him with a guy that was mentoring him. He trusted Christ in my office. Connected him with a guy that was mentoring him. Called the guy that was mentoring him. I was like, why aren't he coming to church anymore? He said, he can't. There's, and he told me the names of these two. He says, there's two men in your church who's wronged him so many times in business. He can't watch them raise their hands and sing. He can't watch them pretending like this stuff is making a difference in their lives, and it's not. People really are walking away. And we really are the salt of the earth, if it's real. 